You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did, as Yahweh commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that Yahweh has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as Yahweh commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil, and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, and anointed the altar and all its utensils, and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons, and clothed them with coats, and tied sashes around their waists, and bound caps on them, as Yahweh commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull, and its skin, and its flesh, and its dung, he burned up with fire outside the camp, as Yahweh commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for Yahweh, as Yahweh commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumb of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat, and the fat tail, and all the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and the right thigh, 
And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before Yahweh, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before Yahweh. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to Yahweh. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before Yahweh. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, as Yahweh commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days, until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, Yahweh has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what Yahweh has charged, so that you do not die, for so I have commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that Yahweh commanded by Moses. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 598 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, April 15th, 2023. And that, my friends, was Leviticus chapter 8, where we see the consecration of Aaron and his sons before the whole people of Israel. And it's amazing, it really bizarre, uncomfortable, unsettling. It's a little bit nauseating, perhaps, if you like animals and you're thinking to yourself, what are they doing to these poor, innocent creatures? But, you know, it's important to notice that the reason is given. Don't miss the reason. This is not random. It's not a random act of violence against an animal. It's not animal cruelty. This is obedience to God who made these animals. He made us. He also gave commands. He also told us to not eat that forbidden fruit in the garden. He told our ancestors, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, and they did it anyways. And what scripture tells us, what God's word tells us, therefore what God tells us is that the whole race fell in Adam. And that might not feel fair to you, but then from whence comes this idea of fairness that we have? (laughs) That's an important question to ask. How do we know what is and is not fair. For that matter too, is it perhaps the case that a lot of things we assume when we come to a text like this, we have been conditioned to assume, whether by ignorance or because certain ideas and attitudes reign supreme in our day, and they're hiding in plain sight. Nobody ever really unpacks them for us. They just are a given. Everybody thinks that. Oh, of course. Don't you know? 
That's the way that the world works. Well, okay, I understand that the world operates according to certain principles. That doesn't mean that those principles are true. It doesn't mean that those represent the standard. If the standard changes tomorrow, you'll know that. And that's where if we're paying attention, if we're humble, if we're seeking understanding and knowledge, and if we read history, we can gain perspective and one, not lose our heads when it looks really bleak, two, not get too comfortable with the current status quo if it looks like things are going super great, but they can change. And we know they can change. They, they can change for the better. And we should pray for that. We should hope for that. We should work for that to God's glory and for one another's benefit. They can also change for the worse. And the reason, humanly speaking, that Moses is consecrating Aaron and his sons, the reason, humanly speaking, is so that they don't die. This is in relation to their sin, not just sin that they've inherited from Adam, I don't think, but their personal sin. They've been alive for a while now. Aaron certainly has sinned when he made the golden calf. That was a sin. And God didn't forget. But this is something that is needed. There needs to be an atonement for that sin. Sin brings death. It brings separation from a holy and righteous God who deserves our obedience. He deserves our worship. He deserves our praise and our honor and our all. And Aaron, not being perfect, we know. Aaron's sons, not being perfect, we can infer from what the rest of Scripture tells us, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is not instead of Christ, but this is a foreshadowing of Christ. This is a preview of what Christ will do in going to the cross on our behalf. And you have to think of it that way. Those who don't know Jesus as the Messiah, they don't see that. But then I don't know what they have instead. I really don't. I, that's a question I have for the Dennis Pragers out there, for the Ben Shapiros out there. What do you have when you sin to make atonement? You don't have a system, a system of sacrifices anymore. You don't have a temple in which to offer bulls and lambs and goats and turtle doves and pigeons and green offerings and all the rest. You don't have that. So what do you have? What we have when we believe in Christ, Jew or Gentile, male or female, free man or slave, what we have is the blood of Christ. And I would encourage any Jews out there who don't know Jesus as Messiah to realize you have your atonement in Christ. You need that atonement. You know you need it. If you read Torah, if you read the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, if you have that, you know you need atonement. So here it is. Here's Christ. Believe in Christ. I would encourage you to. But let's talk a little bit about inheritance. You know, I had a young gal reach out to me this week out of the blue, a young 18-year-old girl living in Las Vegas, going to college there. She just graduated last fall, and now she's going to school. I don't know what she's studying, but she's going to school in Las Vegas. And she messaged me on Facebook, and beautiful girl, really beautiful girl, she kept it brief and told me that I had come up as a match as a second cousin on Ancestry.com. Our DNA matches enough for Ancestry to estimate that we are second cousins. And 
she is trying to find out who her biological father is. She doesn't know. She has an adoptive father. You know, her mom did get married at a certain point after having her. And she's got half siblings, but she doesn't know who her biological father is. And her mom doesn't either. You know, back in the early 2000s, her mom was in college and met some guy and a pregnancy resulted and along came this girl and she's been raised not knowing who her biological father is. And she wanted to know if I could help her figure that out. I could potentially have a first cousin, she thought, who would be her dad. Her mom was about 37 right now. Uh, you know, when she messaged me, I guess you could say is about 37, I presume still. And so she would estimate that her biological father is about that age, but she doesn't know for sure. And so then, uh, you know, I won't go into all the details because I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still uh, trying to do some researches and ask around. Uh, We've pretty well ruled out, uh, me and some other family members on my dad's side, we've pretty well ruled out that it would be any of our first cousins, right? But, but it looks probable that it would be the grandchild of, uh, you know, one of my grandparents' siblings on that side. And it's a, it's a wide net. There's a lot of family and I don't know them all. There's, it's a big, big family and we're spread out all over the U S and there's a lot of possibilities. I'm going to try and help this girl find out who her real father is, but that's sent me back to ancestry.com and looking at some of the genetic testing results. And, you know, it's interesting to me because I have been especially fascinated by my Scottish ancestors. I've been especially fascinated that I have been able to track backwards a long, long time, the men of the line on that side, on my mom's mom's side, the McFarlands. I'm especially fascinated. And so I pay attention to what the estimate is for percent DNA that matches people who live in Scotland. And as I think through the topic of inheritance, you know, I'm looking at my results right now and, and these estimates get updated every few months and I check them and, you know, sometimes it shifts pretty sizably, I think, as to how much is in one category or the other. But as it stands right now, I see England and Northwestern Europe makes up about 67% of my chromosomal DNA. Scotland makes up about 13%. Now that was 17%. And then this most recent update revised that down. But then where does migrations from Scotland to other parts of the world or down into England or to the US, where does that come into play here, right? We don't know. I know that things happened in Scottish history. Things happened in the McFarland clan history a few hundred years ago that drove the McGregors, for instance, into either having to flee Scotland or change their last name or else risk being killed on sight because they fell out of favor with a king. After a blood feud with the Clacoons, who were a rival clan that they took exception to, uh, a, a blood feud with the Clacoons that the McFarlands actually took part in because the McFarlands and the McGregors were friends. 
Uh, McGregor, by the way, you'll recognize perhaps from Sir Walter Scott's story, Rob Roy. Rob Roy is Rob Roy McGregor. And the reason why he goes by Rob Roy instead of Rob Roy McGregor uh, all the time is because McGregor is an outlawed surname. That's an outlawed clan because of the feud with the Calhouns. But where do these estimates have their most accuracy? In the present. You go back a few hundred years and it's hard to tell. And even just within a few months, more data comes in and the estimates can shift pretty sizably. Uh, Where does England and Northwestern Europe end and where does Scotland begin? You know, look at the map and you see these are kind of general spheres and people move back and forth. There's also uh, 10% for me for Germanic Europe. That's on my dad's side. There's 8% Welsh DNA. It's about 2% French DNA, they estimate. So that's fun, right? Like that's that's fun. The Welsh DNA actually is on my dad's side. So is the Germanic DNA. It's on my father's side. So is the French DNA. The Scottish and uh, English Northwestern European genetics, those come from my mom's side. But then there's also some England and Northwestern Europe on my dad's side too. And what's interesting, and I don't quite fully understand this, uh, what's interesting is I get 30, 37% uh, England and Northwestern European DNA on my mom's side. I get 30% from my dad. And then the result is 67% for me because they're not overlapping. So it's different genes and it's cumulative. That, that's an interesting thing to me. Between England and Northwestern Europe and Scotland, 80% of my genes ancestry has a estimate for or a, a guess where they come from in the world. But I look at my wife's and my wife's is also pretty fascinating to me. Similar to me, lots of England and Northwestern Europe from chromosomes one through 22, lots of that. Uh, she's actually got more Scots genetics than I do. And I'm really interested to see if at some future point we get our kids tested, get their genetics tested. I'm, I'll be really interested to see what they end up with. Do they end up with a stronger showing of Scott's DNA? Because on her dad's side and on my mom's side, we both bring Scott's genes. Do they end up having a really strong showing of English and Northwestern European genes? Because that's kind of how it worked for me with my mom's and my dad's both having those. I don't know. Uh, She's also got Wales and Germanic Europe that show up for her. Not as much Germanic Europe as I do, but some Welsh DNA, some Irish DNA, some Norse. Fun fun fact there. (laughs) She's got some Norse DNA on her father's side, probably related to the Scots, right? Probably some interactions there where Vikings settled close by or were making raids and something happened somewhere in the family tree. I don't know the story there. She doesn't either, but you wonder, right? You look at this and, hey, there's some there's some Norse there in the 16th chromosome. How far back was that? Was that a thousand years ago? Uh, what are we looking at here? But my point is, 
if you were to get the DNA results for me and my brother, for instance, or for my dad and his siblings, for instance, or if I get several of my kids' DNA tested, it's not going to be identical because, as you can tell just looking at them, they are different people, right? These genes find expression in different ways. And there's something to that that science is trying to figure out but hasn't quite fully figured out. And so you know, some of what I've done is I've clicked through on some of these chromosomes and looked at the detailed charts and maps and genome mapping and all that. And it's complicated, right? There's a lot to it. And then I see that 95% are undiscovered or unidentified or unlabeled in this chromosome and this chromosome and this chromosome. And so what we really know about how these genes can express themselves in combination with each other you know, it's it's a lot less than what we don't know. There's a, a large <laughs> unknown uh, realm with regards to genetics. And even the estimates that Ancestry will update every few months can shift pretty dramatically. Uh, one curiosity I have, and I don't know the answer to this, is, you know, why is there just a gray zone on my wife's paternal third chromosome? Also, why do some chromosomes show a little bit of two different ethnicities finding expression in the same chromosome? What's that about? What happened there? Why does that happen? Why are they all one thing or all the other sometimes? Is that because we don't really have it all mapped or what's going on? Uh, These are questions I don't know the answers to. I'm just telling you because I know that I don't know the answer to those questions and I'm curious. But then... This is part of why I am answering this young lady's uh, request for help is because it does matter to me where I come from. It's not all important, but it is important. It has some bearing on how I perceive myself in the world, how I perceive uh, what's been passed down to me. My inheritance is contingent on where do I come from? Who Who were my ancestors and what were their stories? And also, what's my story going to be? How am I continuing on that story, either carrying the torch forward or turning away from certain things that were not so good? You know, those are questions that I think everybody should consider. Everybody should dig into. And for this girl, I really hope we're able to find her dad. I hope she's able to find her dad. But then, you know, that's something she told me privately. I gave her a little bit of an update after checking around with some family and kind of analyzing the situation, what I knew, what I didn't know uh, for her sake, where her genes are concerned. And, you know, it's something she told me. She says, you know, I'm I'm so excited and I'm also terrified. And that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a very normal way to feel in her shoes, where on the one hand, she's excited at the possibility that she gets to meet her real dad. And maybe he's great, right? Maybe he's a great guy. And they would have a really good relationship and it would be really something that encouraged her and built her up and was a help to her in life. And on the other hand, maybe he's not such a great guy and maybe she meets him, she finds him and he is hurtful or maybe he's a total jerk. And then that is a disappointment and kudos to her because it takes bravery to do that digging anyways and try and figure it out, go seeking after some answers. Kudos to her. That takes some courage. I told her that too. 
but you can be praying for her and uh, hopefully I hopefully I can help. Uh, pray for me with some wisdom and understanding in this regard. Moving on though, let's take a step away from ancestry and genetics and inheritance and all that. Consider Psalm 118, 8 through 14. It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of Yahweh, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of Yahweh, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of Yahweh, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But Yahweh helped me. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Consider this with me, if you will, just for a moment. It's better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. This eighth verse here. That is not to say you don't ever trust people. Uh, You know, I think some Christians, they have really significant trust issues, and it can be due to becoming acquainted with man's sinful nature and reading about what's in the heart of man in the Bible. And so they do not open themselves up at all. They don't make themselves vulnerable at all. They don't want to take any risk, any chances at all of being hurt or disappointed because man is sinful. And the flip side of that is, but if you trust in God, right? If you take refuge in God, well, then you have a secure place to operate from in your relationships with people. But one thing you'll find when you're operating from that secure place, imperfectly, sure, but confidently, is the people who don't trust in God, they are not seeking after the Lord, they're not trying to follow the Lord, they're not trying to obey God's word and believe in it and take every thought captive, they will feel threatened by you coming from a place of confidence and security. And they'll also feel a bit of guilt and shame about themselves not. And they won't even necessarily know that it's guilt and shame, but they will instead look for a narrative to make sense of the way they're feeling. Uh, This is what I've observed. And I think this is how you explain where persecution of Christians comes from historically is that instead of actually grappling with that guilt and shame, because they've rejected that there is an atoning sacrifice for their sins and that they can be cleansed of all unrighteousness, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, it says, if we confess our sins, because they've rejected that there is that forgiveness and there is that atonement, then all they have is a narrative in which you're haughty, you are puffed up, you are arrogant to operate from a place of confidence when they don't feel that confidence. What reason do you have to feel that confidence? And this is where we're told to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you as a Christian, but to do so with gentleness and respect. When men revile you, when they say all manner of evil against you for his name's sake, if you have answered their questions with gentleness and respect, in the long run, the truth will bear out that you were blameless. And that's what you should aspire to is blamelessness. But don't misunderstand that aspiring to blamelessness or even being 
blameless, really, truly, will protect you from people trying to blame you. They'll try and find a shoe that fits. They'll try and throw accusations at you in hopes that one or more get you to shut up and just act like a normal person. And by that, they would mean act like people who don't know Jesus. And so this is important. It's it's important for us to understand on the front end, because this is part of, I think, what goes into guarding your heart. Guard your heart for from it flow the wellsprings of life. That's wise. That's a wise admonition that we find in God's word in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, it says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And again, like I said, some Christians, they have trust issues with their fellow man. And so they'll take guard your heart to the extent of, I just never open up to anybody about anything. I am never vulnerable. I am never going to put myself in a position where I could be hurt, disappointed, let down, trampled on. And my question would be, well, then how do you love people? How do you obey what God has called you to in terms of loving your neighbor as yourself, if that's how you're going to be? Uh, You can't. So then you have to balance these things, right? Don't give your pearls to swine. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give to dogs what is holy, but do share what is true and what is good and what is beautiful and think on these things and try to live them out. Try to live an independent life, a blameless life, walking properly before outsiders so that you can have a good conscience, so that you can have a good testimony for their sake, for your sake, for the Lord's sake. But that doesn't mean you have to, on the other hand, put yourself in situations where somebody has shown a pattern of evil or malice or contempt or scorn or either trying to tempt you or provoke you or harm you or tear you down. If somebody has shown a pattern of that, you don't have to stay in a bad situation. Actually, for that matter, just because somebody's family, just because they're an old friend, somebody you've known for a long time, just because there's somebody that has been a major influence on your life. That doesn't mean that particularly if you've come to Christ, you are obligated to have nothing change and try and keep everything the same. In fact, you can't, right? Like the more you're trying to serve Christ with your life, the less and less it can be the case that everything just stays like it always was. And if they're not following after Christ, you actually should expect to see that you guys are going to come to different conclusions on things more and more, and you're going to handle situations differently more and more. Otherwise, what really is the testimony to you having faith in Christ and that having produced a good effect? Now, I'm not saying everybody's going to give credit where credit is due quickly, immediately, consistently. And it's not to say either you're going to do it perfectly, but don't trust in man also means if somebody is saying all manner of evil against you, but you are actually being blameless. You are actually just obeying God here. You're obeying the Lord. You're trusting his word. You're trying to be faithful to that. And they're hurling abuse on you. Well, then in that case, even also trust in the Lord, take refuge in the Lord there Don't trust in men. Uh, An example (laughs) from current events. I'll try and steer clear from personal situations as much as I can. 
so as to not embarrass or overshare about individuals and thereby create trust issues for my family and friends. Harris Rigby over at Not the Bee published a piece the day before yesterday. This Florida State University professor suddenly left his $190,000 job after he was accused of faking data in racism studies. Florida State University professor Eric Stewart suddenly left his job after he had six studies retracted after it was alleged he faked data and altered sample sizes in order to make the country seem more racist than it actually is. The first case involved a 2011 study on whether or not people wanted Hispanic and black minorities to face longer jail time when their populations grew. The study showed that that was not the case. Despite the result, the paper was published with altered data to claim there was a correlation, with Pickett noting that many of the changes appeared to have been tacked on just before publication. The co-author of the study, Pickett, noticed that Stewart fudged the numbers and then he claims the university ignored his plea until he filed four more complaints to have other studies retracted. Can you think of why the university would take Stewart's word over Pickett's? And here, just so you know, pictured Stewart on the left, Pickett on the right. Stewart is black, Pickett is white. That's a possibility that they would be afraid by the nature of the allegations and these studies and the current cultural climate. I can see why they would be afraid to give any credit to Pickett's allegations for just this reason, for the exact reason of uh, what actually happened after they started listening to Pickett here. Uh, The biggest change the co-author Pickett pointed out was their sample size growing to 1,184 respondents, even though they had only 500, and that the study's conclusion came from handpicking the data from 91 counties instead of the full list of 326. Stewart and whoever he published the study with wanted a particular result, And it looks like he fudged the numbers to give them that result. Can you think of a cultural or ideological reason why Stewart would have incentive to make white people seem privileged and black people seem like victims? Uh, Here we've got a write-up from Not to Be. A different article is linked in this piece. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank gave $73.4 million to Black Lives Matter causes before its collapse. 73 million with an M, not B, but still $73 million is a lot. It's a lot, a lot. Uh, Here's a tweet from not the B highlighting a tweet from spiked online on Twitter. Black Lives Matter raised nearly 11 billion, this one with a B, not an M, billion dollars in 2020 But what has this actually achieved for black people? One BLM organization seems to have given more grants for trans activism than black civil rights, yet no one seems to care, says at will underscore duh underscore beast 630. The point is not what does will to beast 630 think, and the point is not what does Spike to think, and the point is not not to be raising attention here to this question. The point is there's a lot of money that has been circulating from big corporations and very wealthy individuals inside and outside the country. There's a lot of money that's been floating around for people who claim to be combating systemic racism and promoting CRT. There's a lot of money, $11 billion raised by BLM in 2020. That's a lot of money. What does Black Lives Matter have to do with 
trans rights? Well, if you were reading their website and their About Us page when they very first launched protests that oh so often turned into riots across the country years ago, if you read their website like I did, you came to the conclusion that one, trans rights have nothing whatsoever to do with Black Lives Matter. Two, the common denominator with the rest of their agenda was promoting leftism, not really trying to actually improve the lives of black Americans or solve racism. Actually, arguably, their business model was contingent on increasing racism. I I would argue that, and I have argued that, and I've offended people in my family. I've offended old friends of mine, and it is what it is, actually. If it's a falsehood, right? If it's a falsehood that I'm a racist, well, then I want to answer that charge because it's important to me. If it's a falsehood that this country historically has always been racist, has always been bigoted, has always been sexist, this is the chief claim that Howard Zinn makes, and he was absolutely a communist. He was trying to erode the civic institutions and the social fabric of the United States so that they could institute a communist revolution here so that America would back off the Soviet Union and Mao's China. Uh, you know, if, if that's a false accusation, Generally, not that you can't find racist people, but that America itself is inherently racist. If that's a false accusation, I want to answer that accusation because I live here. It matters to me whether this country becomes a communist country. It matters to me whether we implement socialism here. It matters to my children. It matters to my grandchildren. Should I ever be blessed to have grandchildren? It matters to my friends and family, even the ones who are peddling this stuff uncritically. And that also goes back to Psalm 118. It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. Now, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit, and I want you to consider with me Proverbs 26, 1 through 12. Like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like one who binds the stone in the sling is one who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools." Like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or drunkard. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So all of this is to say, we are told in Proverbs that there is such a thing as folly and that people who embrace folly as a rule are characterized by that. And we would call them foolish. We would call them fools. Now, we have to be careful with that because you don't want to make a judgment on somebody that is permanent, like you're damning them to eternal hell and fire and torment because you said, this is who you are, right? You you don't want to tear people down. But on the other hand, you have to judge with right judgment. And if somebody's talking foolishness, you do need to recognize at least 
Now, that's folly. That, that is not wise, what you're saying. Even if you just keep it to yourself and you're responding accordingly, you have to recognize these things. Otherwise, what's the point of having these categories biblically? Uh, really, what, what is the point? What is the point to our understanding that there's a difference between wisdom and folly or between the wise man and the fool, between the righteous and the wicked? What's the point if it's all the same? If you're not supposed to relate any differently, why would they be characterized for us? Why would we be told? Uh, on the one hand, you could say, well, we're told these things so that we look in the mirror and decide not to be foolish. And I say, yes, that's true. That's good. Uh, but when Jesus says in the New Testament, as you judge, so shall you be judged with the same standard of judgment that you meted out to others, it will be meted out to you. Do not judge lest you be judged. He says that it's hypocrisy to walk around with a plank in your eye and to offer to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, you should first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to help your brother with the speck in his. Which is to say, if you have actually already done that first part that we're talking about, which you should. And if you haven't, why? Right? Why haven't you progressed past that part yet? But if you have, right, if you have done it, then the next step, if you really love your brother as yourself, is to try and help him to take the speck out of his own eye. And for that matter, too, this gets tricky when people will revile you and they will say all manner of evil against you for his name's sake. The more you're following Christ, the more the world will hate you because they hated him first. It gets tricky and you have to weigh and measure who you're dealing with. Are they swine? Are they a dog? Are they acting in a dog-like way, returning to their vomit, repeating their folly over and over again? Well, in that case, you don't have to give them all your time and attention and your energy. It might be best for you to just take refuge in the Lord and keep some distance. When Jesus sends out the 12 to all of the towns and cities of Israel, for instance, he tells them that if the people of any place won't listen to them, they should shake the dust off their feet and continue on. And so that also is instructive for us, where if we are, if we are saying what the Lord has told us to say, doing what the Lord has told us to do, and there's hostility in a certain place, it is okay for us to move on, go somewhere else, find people who actually want to hear what you have to say. Uh, Jordan Peterson would say, if people are not listening to you, stop talking to them. If they're not listening to you, if all they want to do is tear you down, stop talking to them. Go find people who actually want to hear what you have to say. And if you're talking nonsense, then maybe go find people who are going to gently correct you. And that's how the church should be. That's what the church should be. That's how we should be. That's how we should then live. That is wise because that's what God has called us to. But also note here, we see verse 5, Proverbs 26, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Verse 12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. So in other words, somebody can be foolish and you think, well, I don't want to correct them. I don't want to correct them. They're not going to listen to it. They're fools. What a fool. And I'm just going to get down in the mud with this person and I'm, I'm going to be no better than they are. It would be foolish for me to get into this. What a waste of time. Sometimes that's the case, yes. But other times you answer a fool according to his folly because Maybe he's still a fool, but that would be better than him being wise in his own eyes because there's more hope for him if he's just a fool than if he is wise in his own eyes. 
That's how that works. That's how I read it anyways. Moving on, another current events item. DeSantis' speech briefly disrupted by protesters in New Hampshire. I will play cut one here for you, and then I have some thoughts. Thank you. Um, Jews against DeSantis! Jews against DeSantis! You gotta have a little spice in the speech, right? I mean, you gotta have a little fun. Why you'd want to pay the ticket to get in just to do that, I don't know, but different strokes for different folks. So if you look at Florida's history, governor race, president race, 2010, 12, 14, 16, 18, all one-point races. We were the quintessential swing state with a very delicate political balance. So when I was getting ready to take office, people told me, listen, this is a divided state, very close election, you don't want to do anything that's going to upset this balance and maybe tip the scales in the Democrats' favor. So keep your head down. Don't make any waves. Just bide your time and kind of lay low. And, and I understood that advice. Honestly, it wasn't crazy advice, but I rejected that advice. Okay, so a brief comment on the protesters. Uh, one, thank you. Thank you for raising attention for this speech that Ron DeSantis gave in New Hampshire. Thanks for that. That was good. I appreciate that. Uh, they tweeted out, by the way, breaking, if not now, members are confronting Ron DeSantis at a GOP fundraiser in New Hampshire this evening. We're making clear that DeSantis is an anti-Semite whose actions and policies both support Israeli apartheid and put Jews in danger. Now, what's that about? Right? So <laughs> Jews against DeSantis, they're upset because he supports Israel, the, the country of Israel. And therefore, as they reason, because he supports Israel, he therefore is putting Jews in danger. So you see how that works. If you support Israel, then you're an anti-Semite. Uh, right? It doesn't have to make sense, I guess. You just, just get angry. Just get angry, show a lot of emotion, yell really loudly, disrupt, disrupt, disrupt. And uh, that's how we'll know that you're right. Great job. Now, Putting aside the protesters for a moment, because that was just foolishness, the DeSantis comment there, and kudos to him for just carrying right on. <laughs> you know, like he's not disturbed, it doesn't ruffle his feathers, he just continues right on. And he talks about how he was advised going into the governor's race and being told, you don't want to do anything that's going to upset the balance here and tip it in favor of the Democrats. Well, the problem with that is you also are not going to do anything that's going to tip it in favor of Republicans, if that's the strategy. And that is the Republican strategy in much of America. That has been the Republican strategy for a long time. And there have always, I've said this before, I'll say it again, read the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, read Ron Chernow's book on Grant, read about Abraham Lincoln, read about William Tecumseh Sherman, read about the Civil War and Reconstruction, read the history of that period in American history, and you'll find that there were moderate Republicans the whole time from the beginning of the Republican Party in the U.S. who have always been this way. And they're always the hand ringers. They're always the scaredy cats who are afraid of bold action, decisive action against Democrat policies, against 
Democrat lawlessness, which is not a new thing either. There's always been that. There's always been terroristic actions against Republicans by Democrats. Terroristic actions designed to intimidate people away from voting Republican, particularly minorities voting Republican or running as Republicans. There's always been that. But then there have to be people like Lincoln and Grant. And I think DeSantis is in their mold. I think he's in the Ronald Reagan mold as well, where he rejects the advice to just maintain the status quo. The Peacemaker, by the way, if you read The Peacemaker by William Inbedin, great book, came out here uh, several months ago. Read his book about Reagan, and Reagan got the exact same kind of advice with regards to confronting the Soviet Union on the world stage. We don't want to do anything to tip this into an escalation. The foreign policy experts, the military experts, the Republican establishment types here in the U.S., all of them said, we just need to accept that the Soviet Union is going to be a a factor perpetually on into the 21st century, uh, probably forever. They're not going away anytime soon. They're too strong. We can't fight them. They're too dangerous. We don't want to provoke them. And we can't win. So we just need to maintain. And the same mentality is at root here with the kind of advice that Ron DeSantis got going into governor's races. This is just the way that it's always going to be. And you need to accept it and not make any waves. Just be a good little Republican and do the safe thing and govern in the middle like we're telling you to. And we'll tenuously hold on to political power here in Florida. He hasn't done that. And God bless him for not doing that. He is pursuing a pro-family conservative agenda in the state of Florida. And I, for one, and I'm not at all alone, a lot of Republicans are on the same page here. A lot of conservatives are in the same boat. I, for one, speaking for myself, want to see this blueprint applied across the U.S. It would be good for my family. It would be good for your family. It would be good for the economy. It would be good for our foreign relations. It would be good for national security and economic stability and social cohesion. And it would really upset the left, but that's not a reason to not do it because they're going to be upset or they're going to be given control just because they're upset. And then they're going to wreck everything like they have been wrecking everything in a selfish way. As long as they make out like bandits like the people who launched Black Lives Matter and bought mansions for themselves with all the money that was donated to BLM. As long as the left makes out like bandits, then that's their idea of social justice. But we can't accept that. We can't accept that. We need to study. We need to pay attention. We need to keep our heads. We need to do the right thing and say what is true. And if it upsets the left, well, then they're making fools of themselves. They're not making fools of us unless we let them. But Coming back to Psalms and Proverbs, I've got a couple more Proverbs I want to share with you. Uh, one is Proverbs 4, 5. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. This is a father's instruction to his son, not that daughters shouldn't also get wisdom and insight and instruction and knowledge, but specifically, this is fathers to sons as either current or future heads of their households. Verse one starts, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. 
and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight, prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear my son, verse 10, and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. and Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. And this is where it's at, friends. This is where it says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. And so I think here of what DeSantis is doing and it seems exceedingly wise and we would do well to be instructed by it and to not be intimidated by angry, wicked people who don't even know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're saying. They're wise in their own eyes. They're talking nonsense and it will come to a bad end if we compromise with them because they're not right. They're not right. (laughs) Moving on though. One more news story, this one from the Denver Post, politics section of the news. Joe Rubino writes April 15th, Denver's sweeps may be shortening the lives of unhoused people. The city's two mayoral candidates have taken notice. Unhoused people would seem to imply that that is a better term, that's a more kind term, that's a more politically correct term than homeless people. Is this to avoid keyword searches? What is the point? What is the point of saying unhoused people? You're changing the language so that keyword searches don't come up with the same results. I'm not buying it. They're homeless people. They don't have homes. And why don't they have homes? Because of what Democrats have done to the state of Colorado and to the United States of America and to the global economy. And what is Denver debating? What are they going to do? Well, unless they're prepared to give up on Democrat policies that have caused this problem in the first place, unless they're willing to do some serious soul searching about how they got to here, unless they're willing to admit that they've been wise in their own eyes and foolish, they are 
actually, yes, going to continue to shorten the lives of homeless people, and they're going to continue to cause more people to be homeless. They're destroying the economy. They've been destroying the economy for quite some time. They're dismantling it, all because they think they know better than anybody, and they don't. They don't know what they're talking about. They say they're compassionate, and this is proof that they're not. And when you have the proof that these policies are not actually compassionate, they're extraordinarily harmful, and you refuse to accept the evidence or evaluate it or be honest with it and change your ways, well, then you can't tell me you're compassionate. I'm going to say you're selfish and you're stubborn and you're self-willed and you're wise in your own eyes. And we need Republicans who know what they're about, not doing the thing that DeSantis was advised to do. We need Republicans in the state of Colorado to take the Ron DeSantis blueprint and run with it. That's what we need. One more proverb. That was one more news story. Last one for this episode. Here's one more proverb for you. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The way of wisdom is where this is found, and I've talked about the way of wisdom. This chapter is great for comparing wisdom to a woman. Wisdom is a woman, by the way, lest the ladies feel left out. Wisdom is a woman who's built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She's handy, right? She's handy. She's capable. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has built her house. She's a capable woman. She has slaughtered her beasts. So she's able, she's not squeamish. She's able to butcher her own livestock. She has mixed her wine. Oh, wow. So she's a bartender too, of sorts. She's got wine and she mixed it. She's also set her table. So She's not afraid to roll up her sleeves and do some work, prepare a meal for guests. In fact, not just that. She's also sent out her young women. So she has young women. She is means. She employs young ladies and she sends them out like messengers to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. And the reason I bring this up, right? The, rea- the reason I bring this up is because this is the way, friends. This is the way. The woman folly will do a similar thing, but it's different in very important ways. For one, her paths don't lead to life and prosperity and happiness and peace. Her paths lead to death, but the woman wisdom, her paths lead no doubt as to the difference between wisdom and folly, between righteousness and wickedness, between the fear of the Lord and being wise in our own eyes. It is not all the same. It is not all the same. So then we come to uh, something I was talking about all throughout this episode. What do we inherit? And also, how do we relate when people revile us? And also, oh, by the way, do we trust in men or do we trust in God? The resounding answer again and again and again is you trust in God and you don't put your trust in men. You trust that God knows better than men do what is right and what is true and what is good, what is beautiful, what will be necessary for human flourishing, what leads to life. For those who would say Christians shouldn't engage in political discourse or talking about controversial social issues, when lives are on the line and when it's a choice between life and death, you can't tell me that you love your neighbor as yourself and withhold the oracles of life that we have in God's word from actual problems that we are facing right now today. 
that our neighbors are actually facing right now today. Homelessness is an increasing problem in the state of Colorado. And the folks who don't know God, who are wise in their own eyes, but they hate God's word, they resent anybody who brings it to their attention, those folks are only making the problems worse and worse and worse. And making a killing off of it, sometimes literally, other times figuratively, they are rewarded handsomely for it. But Christians have to imitate the woman wisdom here. Hear her invitation and accept it, for one. But for two, extend that invitation to others who are simple so that they also can turn in here, eat our bread, drink our wine that we've mixed, leave their simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Now, verse 7, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And that's not news to me, but it is comforting in some sense when you realize that's how scoffers are. That's how they are. That's how they operate. That's how they act. When you correct them, they try to abuse you. They try to hurt you. They try to tear you down. He who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. So a man who's wicked, he's not going to just not listen to you. He's also going to try to tear you to pieces. This is what Jesus is saying too in the gospels when he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give to dogs what is holy. They will trample on them and turn and tear you to pieces. Give instruction to a wise man though. And this is where you can't just guard your heart to the point of, I don't open myself up to anybody. I'm never vulnerable. I never share with people anything that might even potentially possibly upset them at all, ever, 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 ever. No, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is in sight. For by me... Your days will be multiplied. You'll have a longer life. You'll have a fuller life. Years will be added to your life, she says. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. So keep that in mind too, with regards to scoffers in your life. If you have scoffers who are abusive and injurious and malicious, and you can't tell them they're wrong about anything because they will just rip you a new one. On their own heads be it. You tried. You tried, and if they're not listening, like Jordan Peterson would say, this is really wise advice. If they're not listening to you, stop talking to them. Find wise people who will thank you, who will appreciate it. Or if you're wrong, right? Let's say you are trying to instruct them. You're asking them an important question. If you're wrong, they'll help you to be wiser. Those are the people you want to surround yourself with. Thankfully, by God's grace, I have a number of people in my life who are that way, who are wise. And so sometimes I correct them or I disagree with them and they thank me for it. And they say, oh, that's a really good point. And then before you know it, we're right back to agreeing. And sometimes when I disagree with them, they say, well, yeah, but actually this, this, and this. And then I have to say, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, thank you. And then I'm wiser and I thank them for it. And all of a sudden, we're back to agreeing. And that's how it should be if we love what is good, and what is true, and what is beautiful. And as Christians, we have a responsibility. This is one of the most very practical ways we could possibly love our neighbor as we love ourselves: is to call to the simple, turn in here, here. Let's sit and eat. Can I have you over for a meal? Let's talk. 
right? I'd like to invite you in so that I can share this with you because it will bless your soul and not just your soul in some abstract internal sense, not just in a touchy-feely emotional sense, but in a very practical sense, you will have a better life. Not like everything's going to be perfect sunshine and rainbows. Nothing will ever go badly. I'm not saying that. I Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that. This is not prosperity theology. It's not health and wealth theology. People will hate you for what I'm about to tell you if you believe me, but it's true and it's good and it will bless your life. And more to the point, if the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, I start there. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. I start there. Well then, this is how you have peace with God. This is how you take refuge in God and there's safety there and there's blessing there. And he will reward those who take refuge in him. He will protect and provide for those who take refuge in him forevermore. That, my friends, is the good news. And we have to share it with people. We have to. We have to. And and even if some don't like it, even if some are made angry by that, they react very badly, they react abusively, you say, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Have peace. Don't let it ruffle your feathers or throw you off pitch or scare you away from doing what God has called you to do, whatever that is in the particulars, whatever he has equipped you and called you, commanded you, enabled you to do, do enthusiastically, joyfully, happily, cheerfully. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. Before I do, actually one brief note. So I've gone through, I've gone back on... Uh, about a third of my catalog of podcasts that I had put into subscriber-only mode. And I have changed those up to where now anybody can listen to them. So there's 10 episodes now that are subscriber-only. And they're roughly every third for the last 30 or so. And so if you want to listen to those, you can subscribe to this podcast and you can go in and you can listen. And it's a dollar a month. It's not going to break anybody's bank. For the rest of the episodes, I do have an advertisement at the beginning. For Spotify, I think that's okay. If you get tired of listening to the advertisement, well, I'm sorry, but that's how I make some money here. I'm not making much, but I make a little bit of money. Very, very little. The more people who listen, the more I will make. I make, I think it's like $14 per thousand listens or something. So we're not talking like a great deal of money, but nevertheless, right? It makes enough to where maybe I pay for my Canvas subscription. Maybe when my renewal fees come up for hosting my website, maybe I pay that from this. So far to this point, I haven't broken even by a long shot, either on time invested with podcasting or writing my book. And this is why we homeschool. And I'm not trying to make it big here. I'm not trying to be rich. I want to do this well. I want to do it excellently. If it's just family and friends and some random strangers here and there who benefit because they listen and they're persuaded. And if this is me calling to the simple, come in, turn in, come eat of my bread, drink of the wine I've mixed, then that's enough. But I feel the Lord has called me to this. And so that's why I'm doing it. And I need to remember that. I don't know if that's clear to everybody all the time, but I want to tell you so that you are aware of it. It's not that I have everything figured out, but I do fear the Lord. I do study his word. I'm confident that 
His word will not return void of power, just as he has told us, and that you will reap a benefit if you attend to these things. I'm confident in that. If I weren't confident in it, well, then I wouldn't be doing this. And if I weren't confident and I were doing it anyways, then how would I instill confidence in you that these are things to build into your life that will be beneficial? So all of that to say, I'm confident when I say, you can subscribe for 99 cents a month. It's not a much. It's not a much. You can subscribe and listen to every third episode. Now I might, as time goes on, as more time goes on, I may decide on the episodes that have been out there for a while, you know, maybe once a month, I go back on last month's and I open them up to where you don't have to be subscribed. You can listen to them even without a subscription. Maybe I do that. Uh, we'll play it by ear. And this is a work in progress, right? I'm not committing to something that maybe it'll be better uh, if I don't. You know, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. And then if I need to tweak it on the fly, well, then I tweak it on the fly because I want this to get better and better. And uh, and that's what it is, right? I'm, I'm more and more of an expert the more I do this. But nobody was born being an expert in these things, you have to get better by trying and tweaking and paying attention. So nevertheless, hit subscribe if you haven't. A dollar a month, it's not going to break your bank. Share this with people you think would enjoy it. If you have friends who you think would benefit from listening to this podcast, let's grow this audience. If it's a benefit to you, then I should hope it would be a benefit to your friends, your family, others as well who need to hear these things and be helped in thinking through these things. And even if you don't agree with me, here's the thing. Even if you don't agree with me in the particulars, I still maintain that there's a benefit to us in getting insight and getting wisdom and getting knowledge. There's a benefit to us. And that actually benefits me. Even if I don't make any money off of you becoming wiser and making better decisions, if I don't benefit directly in that way, I will benefit indirectly. My children after me will benefit indirectly from you being wiser and being in the mix. So I'm going to keep telling myself that. I'm going to keep on operating under that premise. But like I said, I got to run. It's a Saturday morning. I'm going to take it easy, get some stuff done around the house. Hope you have a good one. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.